Hello and welcome to episode two of RocketPod. Firstly, thank you all so much for your amazing support during our launch week. We've had some incredible messages, loads of support online, and we're very excited to release the rest of the series to you. So my name is Harry, and of course, I'm joined today by James and Peter. And our guest for episode two is world record holder and adventurer, Neil Lawton. I'm not going to give too much away because Neil joins us now. Good morning, Neil. How are you doing? Very well, Harry. I wanted to kick off today's episode by going back a bit and talking about what you were like as a child, focusing on what your upbringing was like and understand if you always had this drive for adventure. Uh, yeah, well, that's the scary prospect, thinking back uh, all those years. Um, what was I like as a child? Uh, probably tr- troublesome. Um, I have to admit to you, I was at one point expelled for extremely bad behaviour, uh, essentially organising a rave at school, uh, getting caught, um, and being flogged by the headmaster, and then promptly, uh, in fact, it was eight lashings of a cane, which was a maximum corporal punishment you could give in boarding school in those days, and then um, very promptly expelled for uh, for the rest of term. So, but I, but I was given a second chance. They they, they had me back, and um, uh, I was quite entrepreneurial. Um, maybe they only had me back because I volunteered to run the sweet shop. Uh, the school sweet shop and um, managed to turn a profit and do some more bad stuff like experiment with um, vodka making but I got away with that and um, saw my school days out. Uh, I was always quite adventurous I think um, you know my my mother was very homely, my dad was a, a traveling wanderer, he was a Royal Navy officer and probably uh, I, I've got a, a split of DNA from, from either, either of them but uh, my, I remember my first expedition as a 13-year-old, a little bit uh, younger than you, Harry, um, two or three-day canoeing expedition uh, in my local river. So, yeah, that was my first, and uh, obviously um, my passion developed into exploring, adventuring, and organizing expeditions. So uh, that's kind of what I was like. Brought up in, um, I went to school in Sussex and brought up in Somerset. So you mentioned this DNA split. Now, would you say that your parents probably had quite a big influence on you growing up? I think invariably that your parents have a, a huge influence in, in your development and your life, clearly. Um, so, yes, I think I took hopefully a bit of compassion and love uh, from my mum and uh, the adventuring gene from my dad. And in fact, I think he was catalyst in uh, the, the setting me up for my first aspirational goal, which was to join the Royal Marines. How did that work? And and this wouldn't happen today, unfortunately. But as I mentioned, my dad was a, a captain in the, in the, in the Navy. Uh, he literally it was organized. I, I picked my two best mates at school and said, we're, uh, we're going on an adventure. My dad sent a helicopter pilot from the aircraft carrier he was second in command of um, in Portsmouth Harbor uh, all the way to Sussex, landed the helicopter in the, uh, the front of the school um, me and my two mates boarded with our sleeping bags and we disappeared for four days at sea with the with the HMS Bulwark and, um, you know, 2000 Royal Navy sailors. But being a commando carrier, um, the place was not full, but it was obviously had Royal Marines doing their daring things up and down uh, ropes on underneath helicopters floating above the, the deck. And they would go off for a mission for a few hours with their camouflage faces and rifles slung on their backs. And uh, as a, a young 12-year-old, I have no idea what my two mates went off to do, probably banking, but I just fell in love with the concept of um, 
uh, abseiling up and down or down ropes from a helicopter onto a moving ship. I mean, a boy's, uh, boy's homemade adventure. And so I took it upon myself there and then to become a Royal Marine. Uh, two years in the Marines, uh, try, try, and, try my hand at a career. It didn't quite work out. I, I went off the rails slightly because uh, dad um, died of cancer, a difficult period. Um, and, uh, you know, I had one of those, um, you'll, you won't have, you'll be too young to have one of these, but a, an interview without coffee is where your commanding officer calls you in uh, to the office and goes, um, uh, Lieutenant Lawton, things aren't working out. Uh, here's your P45, essentially. Um, my mindset with, with dad dying wasn't, wasn't in the right place. And um, I was in no fit state to, to lead a troop of Marines. So uh, I was dismissed. So a, a pretty tough uh, life lesson to uh, accept that kind of failure, having been my main aspirational goal in life. But, you know, um, I'm sure we'll cover it. You know, what, what, what makes somebody turn around in the face of adversity or uh, obstacles or disappointment and failure um, to go, OK, so the Marines don't want me. Let's go for the SAS. So, so that experience. So, do you can you comment on the premise that um, sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you can, I guess, reinvent yourself? Because sometimes it takes. I mean, that's you know, sincere condolences with the loss of your father at that time in your life. That must be very difficult. But um, so it sounds like you you had a rebirth um, from that that tr- tragedy um, at a young age. So, can you t- talk a little bit about that and about your views on? when you have a really tough time, do you think it takes, do you, ha- do you think you have to hit rock bottom before you can, can kind of get yourself out of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, th- I don't think you have to, James. I think um, sometimes, you know, you hear these stories of amazing entrepreneurs, um, you know, migrants and immigrants who come from difficult parts of the world to this country or America or, or anywhere else in, in, in so-called first world, and because they have an amazing work ethic, because they're, you know, if, if you like, uh, their backs are to the wall, they've got nothing. There is nowhere to go other than death or, um, you know, just entrepreneurial uh, industry, get, you know, get stuck in and, and make the best of what you've got. And it's that mindset that creates the success. Um, plenty of quotes out there about, you know, uh, getting up early, striking oil to, to be successful. But it, the, the main point is, uh, you know, if you if if you are on rock bottom, there is either only two places you can go, um, and one of those options not very pleasant. So, it does force people to concentrate, to to make good decisions, and to you know roll their sleeves up and work hard and, and make the best of what they've got. And often it's that mindset that takes people on to the next few levels. So essentially, it's a choice. So you either become a victim, you either choose to become a victim and go on a downward spiral, or you make a choice to, you know, learn from your experiences and, and go up. Hundred percent, and that's why I think, that's why I think, you know, mindset and mental health and and good 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 routines and habits uh, to keep yourself mentally, physically, psychologically, spiritually in the right shape in order to, uh, you know, to push on. That's really interesting. So you you essentially, you know, you set the bar even higher. It seems to join the SAS. So you know, from, you know, a, from a place of you know, perceived failure, um, you picked yourself up and then you set an even higher goal for yourself and then you smashed it by the sound of things. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about um, 
your experience in the military. Uh, obviously, you were quite a wild um, individual at school and you had lots of fun and got into a bit of trouble. Um, what did the military do for you, um, both in the Royal Marines and then um, joining the SAS? Well, uh, serving in the military, I think, is a, is a great educational uh, experience, first of all. You, um, you know, it's, it's a certain style of, uh, of life uh, and um, family. And it has, you know, plenty of advantages, um, a few disadvantages. But uh, overall, for me, it was, uh, it was a, a place where you could grow up very quickly, uh, join the real world and, um, you know, strike some amazing experiences, uh, incredible uh, friends. Um, and, you know, one, one or two of the, th the, the real core benefits for me, I think, are probably, um, you know, just that camaraderie, uh, being able to think on your feet and not panic in a, in a crisis, deal with what's in front of you sensibly, make good decisions. And probably the, the one thing above all else is just, um, you know, the, the fact that lifestyle of, of, of what you do in the military, particularly special forces, um, it's tough and it just gives you a sense and experience right the way through day in day out of being resilient okay that resilience thing uh, that's a really interesting subject um, can you can you talk about about what resilience means to you um, obviously you've pushed yourself both mentally and physically I can imagine the the training at the SAS is absolutely brutal um, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about resilience Resilience, when it comes down to it, is preparing your mind and body for the challenges ahead and actually, um, you know, being prepared. I mean, some of the, the principles of the founder of the Special Air Service Regiment, um, Colonel David Sterling, he said right from the start that uh, people wanting to join his family, uh, the SAS, need, need to have four, four key qualities. And the first that he was looking for was a never-ending pursuit of excellence never accepting mediocrity, always pushing uh, for the next level. So um, excellence and, and pursuit, pursuit of excellence was, was top, top of his, his agenda. And the second was self-discipline. And that uh, speaks for itself. It's, it's not um, going off and having too many cigars, uh, James, and, and ruining your, 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 your mind and body. And um, so self-discipline, getting up in the, early in the morning and doing your jobs and doing things that you say that you would do when you said that you would do them. Um, the, the third thing was humility, which clearly I'm, I'm still working on. Um, and the fourth is humor. And uh, humor is a huge, hugely important aspect. You'll, heard, you'll have heard the expression of black humor in the military and police and, and ambulance service. When you're faced with difficult situations and scenarios and circumstances in life, actually what gets you through is that uh, camaraderie and that black humor uh, and maintaining a sense of humor, not taking yourself or the situation too seriously and just uh, coping with it. Um, and so coming back to your question, resilience, it's about being prepared mentally, physically. It's about um, you know working together to ensure that you you achieve what you're trying to uh, to to achieve. And then most importantly, just never giving up, just keeping going, finding finding a route around the obstacle, the problem, or the difficulty. I think that's a, I think that's a really good explanation of resilience. Those kind of four key principles: the pursuit of excellence, and obviously concluding it's just a case of never giving up. And actually, somebody mentioned to me um, quite a while back that um, 
when you're in pursuit of something um it's the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire and it's actually finding what you really enjoy what you really love and just not giving up and it is that comes back to those four principles and i guess that leads me quite nicely onto my sort of next topic i wanted to discuss with you neil and it's actually about your expeditions up mount everest and i think it was in 1998 you climbed mount everest um, and i remember listening to, to, to a documentary and it said 8,000 meters and whilst you were in the death zone you hit um, we well, were hit by the worst storm in a hundred years. Um, so please, could you share what that was like and probably the thoughts that were going through your head? Uh, so just to correct you slightly, I've, I've led, uh, organized and led six expeditions to Mount Everest. And it was the, actually the very first one in 1996, uh, where, um, I, I had a, uh, a close climbing partner, um, a chap called Paul, and we were a part of a, an in, international, uh, joint effort team um, and uh, when the mid-May disastrous storm what the Tibetan government would claim to be the worst storm in a hundred years it was it was just something that came out it was kind of expected uh, although um, it was really only the Americans had the um, the technology uh, a newer storm was coming and we had an inkling that a storm might be on its way but um, uh, we didn't know when and uh, there was a lot of politics and unfortunately a lot of teams including the americans uh, were caught out and in fact they they suffered the worst because uh, the storm came in very quickly it was um, a category uh, whatever big storm uh, 100 mile an hour winds um, obviously uh, being 8000 meters 26000 feet up a, the world's highest mountain uh, as i was at the time uh, you can imagine was pretty uncomfortable and yes we we feared somewhat for our, our lives at that point literally battling down the hatches um we had two missing climbers from our international team that we were kind of going out and looking looking for uh, in the maelstrom uh you know we had to get out in the middle of the night to, to tie the ropes down stop our tent from blowing off the mountainside and then all the while through the night the americans and a couple of other teams were suffering having made their summit bid and were trying to make their way back to where we were at the uh, the final campsite camp four south coal um at the uh, you know the last campsite before before the summit and um yeah i mean uh, one day i shall shall write my book and and explain to you the horrors of uh, the 48 hours i spent there but suffice to say uh, it was it was a, a sad um, uh, scenario of, of I think eight people losing their lives in a short space of time from being blown off the mountain to um, you know uh, dying of medical reasons or or just simply freezing to death. Um, did uh, you know I spent two two days and two nights uh, you know up there tr trying to survive and then uh, latterly to try and help people get off the mountain uh, safely, including uh, Beck Weathers, who was the who's the postal worker who was um, tragically uh, almost left, well, he was left for dead 300 meters from our campsite. And we, his team doctor, I'd spoken to him in the morning, the second morning, and um, sorry, the first morning, and he had been to see him and had pronounced him uh, unsavable. And uh, you want a, a story of resilience and, and um, you know, survival. The human instinct to survive is, is enormous. You just got to give it a chance. And this guy, having been, uh, you know, survived through the night in the open, was in a pretty bad way with huge frostbite injuries. 
and you know you can't carry people at that altitude you couldn't put your couldn't put a body on your shoulders and and firemen's lift them down the mountain it's just not really possible and so his team his own team doctor his colleague his friend uh, just left him there sadly to to pass away but uh, beck a light bulb went off in his in his head he realized that nobody was coming to get him including uh, to my uh, you know eternal uh, not shame because I, I didn't know any better um, went to help others but um, you know he was left to die on his own and um, he crawled into camp and was saved he saved himself Wow, that's such a powerful sort of demonstration of resilience of, of what the human body, the human mind is capable of. I guess the realisation that no one was coming back to save him. Um, he managed to dig deep and, and well, save himself. Um, but you also mentioned a second ago that there was a potential pre-warning, I think, of the storm. Um, so did you know that there was a potential storm coming? Or I guess over the it's quite a long period of time, the expeditions. So is this something that you just took into account um, when you went up? No, I mean, there's always a, there's always um, during a six or seven week uh, Everest expeditions, there's always going to be bad weather. There's always going to be storms um, and you just have to, you know, do your best to avoid them, plan your summit bids, etc. cetera, uh, in between them. And sometimes you're lucky and some, sometimes you're not. I mean, um, a few years ago, I took a team to attempt the world's highest black tie dinner party uh, record um and uh that was all going really well until we were 21,000 feet up um the mountain on the north side and a wretched category 8 earthquake struck which was a horrendous disaster for the whole region um you know you just couldn't you just couldn't make it up so yeah of, of my various expeditions to Everest I've uh, managed to coincide with two or three of the worst disasters in 100 years of uh, climbing Everest, so um, don't come on expedition with me. As the <laughs> you did six, didn't you? That's what you just said. Six. That's yeah. Awesome. So actually, another expedition I wanted to quickly touch on was the Timbuktu in a flying car. Firstly, before we get into that, can you just explain how on earth that expedition came about? Yeah. Okay. So um, I mean, I, I climbed um, Everest actually in '98 with um, a young Bear Grylls and became a good mate of mine. Uh, was, was the best man at my wedding. Uh, we then went on and did a, a few different um, missions together, like um, jet skiing around um, mainland Britain uh, for our summer holidays and stuff like that. We used to get up to a bit of mischief, flying uh, parachutes, paramotors, you know, free falling and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, one day uh, we were doing a, a mission back on Everest. I think my fourth, uh, fourth or fifth expedition to it to Everest was. Um, uh, with Bear and a chap called Gilo to try and fly a motorized parachute to the height of Everest, which would smash the existing world record. And in so doing, uh, look to raise about a million pounds or million dollars for uh, Global Angels, a charity. So we were there, uh, Bear smashed the record, and then um, we were having a, a cup of tea in the tent afterwards. And Gilo, who'd designed the, um, the engines for, the, uh, for, the, for this incredible uh, new um, world record for a paramotor uh, said to me, Neil, I think I think I can now uh, realize my boyhood dream of designing and building the world's first road legal flying car. And I, I, my jaw hit the floor. I was a pilot, um, fly planes, helicopters, parachutes, all sorts. And 
and of course uh, my ears um, pricked pricked up. I, I, I took a swig of tea and, and, and literally found myself saying, how much to make a prototype? And he, he, he gave me a six-figure uh, number. I, I had another swig of tea, he swallowed hard and reached across, shook his hand. No idea where I was going to get 150 grand from. Um, but, uh, you know, I shook his hand. I said, I'm, I'm going to be the owner of that, um, that flying car. And it's in my shed. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Back to the podcast. I need to come have a look at that car. That sounds awesome. So this expedition started kicking off. So can you tell us like the process to, 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 I guess, getting going with it? I mean, obviously you did, you did a lot of test runs, that sort of thing. So can you kind of delve into a little bit more about the, the testing process and actually starting to do a few test runs and that sort of thing? Uh, sure. Yeah. But I think what's probably, I'll, I'll phrase the answer. It, it's slightly more entrepreneurially for you for, and for your audience, because whilst it's an adventure story, it actually, uh, the reason why I did an expedition with uh, a road legal flying car was purely to help pay for the 150 grand, which I was facing, uh, you know, in quite short shrift. I had eight months to find uh, that sort of money out of the blue. And um, so, you know, what do you do when you're faced with a, with a tricky situation? I've committed to uh, being the owner of a new uh, prototype uh, flying car, which incidentally, basically, it's a sort of Mad Max-esque off-road uh, independent suspension, um, you know, off-road buggy. And uh, Gilo, the engineer, uh, put a propeller on the back, twisted the engine, did some very clever engineering stuff. And then it would uh, literally fly under a, a massive paraglider's canopy, which, of course, when you're not flying, just stuffs into a stuff sack, stick it in the boot and off you drive down the road. Um, fill up with fuel at a petrol station, drive to uh, Starbucks. And then um, when you feel like it, you then deploy the parachute in an a, you know, airfield or a, just a, somebody's garden. And then take off, brilliant. Uh, so that was the that was what I was I bought into. But uh, faced with 150 grand, what what do you do? I, I've got to raise this sort of money, I, and I and I simply thought, well, we've got to do a, a an attractive expedition, which incidentally is going to cost another 150 grand to execute on. But the difference is that is something that sponsors can buy into. They can they can buy uh, you know logo on the car. They there's this great journey. It's going to be filmed by Channel Four. That's got value, and therefore uh, I had within uh, five or six months uh, raised a hundred and I think a hundred grand of the hundred and fifty, and I needed a little bit more. Had a bit of luck. A friend introduced me to a rich entrepreneur. Uh, I took I, I committed to um, 
taking her out for lunch in a three-star Michelin restaurant somewhere near uh, Oxford. It was a bit of a, um, a bit of a gamble, but it paid off. Uh, this entrepreneurial lady said to me, I love your flying car project. Definitely want to get involved. Come and see me next Tuesday, uh, 11 o'clock, and, and I'll see how, how we can help you. So I went for the meeting. No, uh, you know, no, no time for coffee. She was straight in, sat down next to me in a, a meeting room and said, how much do you need? 100 grand, I said. And she said, right, um, just nip around the corner, see my accountant, and he'll write you a check. Thanks very much. So we, um, we, Giles designed the, 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 the world's first road legal flying car. And then uh, during the course of um, uh, 10 months, I organized 12 of us. And we did a journey from London to Timbuktu, uh, sort of 10,000 kilometer, eight countries, three minefields, two stretches of water, including the Straits of Gibraltar, which um, was, was quite hairy. And, um, uh, you know, crossing the Sahara Desert, a, a great mission. Perfect. Sounds awesome. And didn't you actually get stopped by the police when you landed? Well, yes. Um, it's, I don't know how long you've got. I basically, um, flying car, if you're designing a flying car and doing a 10,000 kilometer journey, you have to fly it across a, a body of water to make it, you know, legit. So unfortunately, we didn't quite get the permissions from the UK government for uh, or the CAA um, for flying in the UK. And so I was... Uh, unable to fly across the English Channel, which was a, a huge disappointment. And so the only other stretch of water we had to do on that journey was, of course, from uh, Europe to Africa, um, Spain to North Africa, and that's the Straits of Gibraltar, 32 miles. And um, the first attempt was a disaster. I, uh, I took off and a, a wind shear gust took me and I crash landed into, into the surf car nearly got lost in the in the incoming tide we pulled it out uh, tried again the next day the next day i took off i was about 100 feet up um and there was a technical problem with the with, with the parachute and it meant that the uh the, the whole car was liable to uh, to implode the, the canopy would collapse i would drop like a stone be knocked unconscious and then drown uh, not not a great prospect and so the uh, channel 4 film shows me literally uh, unstrapping and, and ready to, to jump out into the sea. And then obviously the car would have crashed and, and, and gone to the bottom of the sea. But um, some weird uh, aerodynamics happened. As I uh, prepared to jump out, I was literally hanging onto the side of the car, ready to jump, 100 foot up. Um, you know, it would have been the end of the expedition, end of the car, end of all my you know, investments and all the rest of it. Um, the balance twisted the car 180 degrees. It started going downwind, and um, the, the the major uh, aerodynamic problem kind of semi-fixed. I did an emergency landing, and whilst the cameras were still running, Gilo fixed it. The problem on the beach. I told him what, what he could see. What it was. It was it was um, faulty brake lines, nearly causing us to uh, you know to to to, um, to collapse the canopy, and he fixed it there and then. I jumped back in for my third attempt and uh, it was a glorious flight right the way across the Straits of Gibraltar. But we had all sorts of other problems. So I had a team, half my team on the other side in North Africa. They'd identified a, a landing spot in a Sainsbury's car park or equivalent in North Africa, which um, five minutes before that third takeoff, uh, I was radioed and they said, abort, abort, the army are starting an exercise in the car park. 
So I had no other option that, than to land in uh, Suta Heliport, which is a very short, uh, you know, this is, the flying cars are characteristics of a fixed wing aircraft. It needs a decent landing space. Um, but this heliport is very tight, narrow, bit of car park, concrete landing space. And, um, you know, they had, I'd asked permission prior and they'd forbidden me, uh, but I got into the air, made a uh, kind of a one down, a pan pan call, which is one down from a mayday, and then switched the engine off, concentrated on landing illegally at the heli heliport, landed it, celebrated um, vigorously um, that I was still alive, and then probably got arrested. Such a great outcome. <laughs> From that, I actually wanted to touch on mindset a little bit, because you just said about how during, I think, your second test, you nearly had to jump out, which then caused it to veer around. But you then straight away got back in and completed the expedition. Could you talk about how key your mindset was to, to that sort of expedition? Also, what encouraged you to get back in and go? And where did you get that drive to have to finish what you sort of started? I think the short answer is fear, probably. Um, you know, you're, you're hugely driven by, we're humans, aren't we? You know, and, and that for me was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Um, but I think, you know, to, to refer back to one of your previous questions, you know, I'd had a uh, 20 years at this point experience of dealing with uh, difficult situations, Everest and military and so forth. And actually you, you get attuned to, coping in a crisis, coping better in a crisis or, you know, potential disaster situation. And whilst you acknowledge the fear, you acknowledge the danger that you're in, um, training, experience, age, and a little bit of that, you know, natural response to fear kicks in. Uh, I told you about, you know, the survival instincts of, of Beck Weathers just now. And for me at that moment, I had to make some Ricky good decisions or I would die and that kind of focuses your mind doesn't it somewhat um, and so I you know whilst in the video I don't know if you've seen it there is the, there's the video on my website but um, you will see if you look into my eyes there's a the channel 4 camera positioned uh, into into the car and you could see me reacting to that potentially um, you know life uh, ending moment and you can see the fear you can absolutely see the fear in my eyes but I think you can also see a, a kind of a determination to try at least to find a solution and, I'm, uh, and I'm, I'm trying different things to resolve the problem. Then I make the decision to, to, to leap out because I think it's beyond, uh, beyond help, beyond saving. And then I realize that, uh, you know, something interesting is happening with the dynamics of it. So my brain is working. It's not frozen. It's not seized. I'm not in complete panic mode. I'm still thinking, I'm still making rational decisions, and I choose to get back into the pilot seat and then navigate and make an emergency landing. And that takes cognitive skills, which is based on not panicking, making good decisions, and just adapting to the, the, the problems that face you at the time. Yeah, that takes a huge amount of discipline and the conditioning from your training, um, but it's preparedness, isn't it? So you. Obviously, you would you 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 could make those decisions in a uh, in a crazy situation. I also really like the idea that just for our listeners out there, um, you, you know, starting with the end in mind. The the end in mind was this flying car. You know, you thought it was a good idea, and it, you know, um, and you just you went for it without actually without all that ambiguity, without actually knowing how you were going to raise the money. You know, whether it was going to work. You know, I mean, obviously, you had faith in your friend friend's engineering capability. 
um, and then to actually do it and then facing these obstacles along the way, which is was hugely inspiring. Um, and I'm also interested in, obviously, that's a kind of a crazy, mad adventure. Um, the result of that after you, you've done it, can you talk about after the event, you know, the people you met along the way, you know, by doing something out of the ordinary, which is, well, it's, it's certainly extraordinary. Not only did you complete your mission, um, but can you talk about the, the, the positive outfall or the, you know, what, what happened after? How, how did, did it propel you onto something else that you wouldn't have otherwise done if you hadn't done that? Yeah, so, um, yeah, no, it was an extraordinary uh, mission. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that was striking me as you were, as you were asking the question is, is kind of the reasons why. I mean, yes, there are huge benefits for for doing a challenging expedition uh, and you probably haven't got long enough for me to explain all the benefits of of of, of doing that and the you know just all the challenges the the obstacles the the excitement of bringing uh you know good people together in a team and and, and the privilege of leading them on a, a you know semi-dangerous mission for six weeks non-stop without a day off um, and, the, and, the, and the amazing friendships you get from that, and as you say, the opportunities that, that come from it. Um, but for me, you know, the, one of the main reasons is, is fun. It's just taking life and grabbing the things that you enjoy within it uh, and pushing it as far as you dare. That's a really good, that's a really nice answer. I like that. We, we could all do with a bit more fun. Let's face it. You know, we could be on the hamster wheel running around. and Yeah, and I think people do, you know, they, we, we all get wrapped up in responsibilities and, uh, you know, financial constraints and logistical and, you know, we're all in a COVID-19 nightmare right now. You know, uh, there's always an excuse. Um, but actually, like the flying car story, reach across, shake the hand, do the deal, even though you haven't got all the answers because life will never be perfect. And... Um, you know, I'm a great believer in gut instinct. What feels right uh, generally normally will be right. And if not, you tweak it, tweak the plan, make it, uh, uh, you know, don't be a diehard. Um, you know, make some changes and, and uh, change and adapt. Could you talk, uh, just could you comment on your relationship with the present moment? Do you, the mindful, the mindful, you know, mind being in the present, basically. Uh, yeah, well, I'm afraid I'm not really a, a, a sort of mindfulness guru, so I'm not sure quite how to answer that question. Um, do you want me to give you an example of of, of current mindset, or so a bit of? So I'll tell you what sparked it for me. So when you were in this uh, dangerous situation, you were being very decisive. Um, you were very much in the moment. You were very much aware of your surroundings. Um, and I, I think um, something that I've personally struggled with is either thinking too far ahead in the future or or having a foot dragged in the past. Um, and it's something that I'm always trying to get better at as actually being present. And it could be for relationships um, with my children. I have three daughters, um, you know, cause being, you know, so that, that, that whole mindfulness thing is kind of inter interesting to me. I just wondered uh, how you operate, uh, whether that's something that is important to you or whether you're always looking for the next thing. Yeah, okay, so I understand your question now. Um, generally speaking for me, uh, the past is history. Um, I think it's really important to learn from the past and, and what you've done or what other people have done. And uh, great that, you know, you said to me earlier about reading uh, 10 pages of, of people's biographies or, 
or uh, non-fiction books you know learning from the experience of others is 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 great and and i certainly do my my fair share of that but generally speaking uh, i'm i'm somebody who lives for the for the now and try whenever possible to to enjoy the moment to uh, to do the right things and um you know that stretches to a vision to the future and um i'm always amazed how you know people in my network um just operate a week in advance i you know i just for me that's just really short-sighted um that didn't mean that as a pun actually but um but you know what i mean um i'm operating two three years in advance uh, thinking of uh, long-term projects uh, extrapolating you know things like um you know, i run the penny farthing club i've been doing that for a few years in in in, in london and um i'm you know i'm now negotiating license agreements for other people i've taught who've bought into riding penny farthings and wanting to teach others in different parts of the country and possibly the world and so i'm thinking two or three years in advance the penny farthing club will be represented in you know 50 50 countries and and 30 cities in the uk hopefully definitely i've seen you i've seen you doing a lot of that I've, i have wanted to give it a go it just it's just that just doing it sort of thing but that also comes down i'm not sure you're tall enough harry i'll give it a go i'll give it a go <laughs> gotta be done yes you will <laughs> but one thing uh, that word fun i think that's again that's someone i did want to touch on because that's such a great word to use and i think people need to have more fun in everything they're doing and i like your mindset in terms of if you want to do something you just do it i remember when we met last time you were building some sort of japanese tp in your garden i can't remember what, do you remember that what, what was that <laughs> Yeah, I do know what that is. You, you nearly got there. It's a Mongolian yurt. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds brilliant. <laughs> there you go, exactly. Obviously, with the Penny Farthing Club, you set, I mean, I mean, you did the no hands three world records in one hit. But one thing that you said before is it's not so much the world record, it's about world firsts. Now, why is that important to you? Why have you always had that mindset to get that world first? I suppose I'm a bit of a hypocrite. I mean, yes, I, I do have um, some records and some Guinness World Records. Um, but not not generally uh, for I think I'd like to think we're coming back to the humility bit. I, you know, it's it's nice to have a few records, but um, you know, f for me, doing something uh, to be the first to do something like you know, take the concept of a flying car and uh, and fly drive it across the Sahara Desert. Um, you know, I did I wasn't looking for a world record. Um, you know, I was just looking for a fantastic challenge and, and an amazing journey and a wonderful experience which which we got and i i think maybe to answer your question it's more about um you know with with something that's never been done before uh you get to make up the rules i think that's more interesting than following a set of boring guidelines like we did on everest to get the highest dinner party guinness world records you know three pages of rules you've got to have a, a, a chair with a back on it You've got to um, you've got to drink you've got to drink alcohol. I mean, anyone who climbs Everest knows that the last thing you should be doing at, at twenty three thousand feet on on the side of Mount Everest is drinking alcohol with your dinner. I mean, so ridiculous, really. Um, but the point the point I'm making is that you know, with a first, it 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 is fun. So uh, what springs to mind, just to try and give you an example, is. Um, you know, whilst we were on uh, the second attempt, we got earthquake in 2015, attempting the highest dinner party in the world. 
I went back three years later in 2018, April, um, May, April, May, and we, um, we did set the record and we sat down for our three course dinner um, and it was a Guinness World Record. And yes, we ate uh, and drank alcohol at 23,000 feet, I admit it. But um, in order to get the Guinness World Record, we needed to do that to appease the sponsors and to raise the 100 grand we did for charity. All of that's great. But you know, the one thing that I enjoyed more than anything else was when we were sat at base camp a few days before and um, people, my team were a little bit lethargic, a couple, couple of people suffering from altitude uh, sickness and, you know, the, the, the mood was just a little bit damp, if you know what I mean. And so I said, okay, the next morning I'm going to arrange um, a game. Uh, I need you to all be out at 11 o'clock outside my tent. And uh, they duly traipsed out the following morning. And I put them into two teams and, and I created a little bit of a, you know, start line and then a finish line. And they're all really confused. Um, we had Sherpas in there. We had Chapanis. We had um, Americans, Brits, males, females, young and old. And um, they were all intrigued as to what was going to happen. I put a spoon in each of the front um, two people's hands, placed an egg on each of the spoons and said, and blew a whistle and said, go, egg and spoon race relay, off you go. <laughs> and we had um, half an hour of the most hilarious fun, uh, you know, trying to, trying to win an egg and spoon race at the highest altitude uh, ever to have an egg and spoon race. A lot of fun, no world records, although I told everybody it was a world record uh, to, to, to motivate them. But uh, do you know what I mean? It was just something that had never been done or thought to, to do, but at that moment was the right thing to do for the, for, for the team and the morale. Yeah. In fact, um, there's two things that spring to my mind. So one is we, we all need a purpose. So I think to have, to start with the end in mind, even your cast adventure story and even, I guess, something Everest, um, to have that... Uh, that goal that everyone can rally around um, gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, the what if question, actually, um, last week we interviewed Sally Gunnell, um, Olympic gold champion for 400 meter hurdles. Um, and in fact, she's won four titles, the uh, Commonwealth, the European and the World uh, Games. Uh, and uh, she was saying that 70% uh, of her success was attributed to, to uh, mental, it's all mental. Um, and she, the, the preparedness that she went through is that she went through every eventuality. If she hit a hurdle, um, she'd already anticipated a lot of the things that could have gone wrong. Um, and I think that, you know, just again, we're hearing it from you. It's this mindset. Um, but yeah, we all need a purpose. Um, and um, the preparedness thing is, is kind of interesting. In fact, on your the, the habits, can you talk a little bit about your the, the habits that you've developed? You talked about getting up early. Um, so your military training kind of instilled that in you. Are there any good habits that you continue to this day that you could um, talk to our listeners about? Um, okay, so probably num number one, and I'll try and make this uh, esoteric. And, and um, so number one would be uh, at least once a day, uh, get out, uh, uh, turn your screens off and go and, go and get some, some uh, fresh air. Uh, do a walk, you know, do a little bit of exercise, something that, you can expand your lungs and, and get out of um, the artificial environment of an office, home, or uh, doghouse, or Mongolian yurt, Harry. Uh, number two, 
um, from a business perspective and, and, and making, making your way in the world, whether you're employed or self-employed or whatever, I would say uh, go to two networking, selling, marketing opportunities a month. So uh, what's, what's number three? Um, yeah, okay. So every year, do three challenging things. So for example, uh, one of my three, if I'm using my own analogy, uh, on Sunday, I will be with a couple of mates attempting to ride the century on the penny farthing bike. Never done it before. It's going to be painful, but we've raised a few quid for a char local charity. Um, a good friend of mine at our end destination in Bournemouth uh, is so impressed that he's um, persuaded a hotelier to give us uh, five-star rooms and a, and a three-star meal when we get there. So there's the motivation, there's the incentive, there's the challenge, there's the, uh, the opportunity. Things will come out of it, um, new contacts, new opportunities, and uh, hopefully I shall lose a little bit of weight uh, to boot. Some great advice. Actually, I'm going to be not quite to the level, but I'm going to be chucking myself out of a plane once lockdown is uh, is over for the first time skydiving. It's one of those things that I've wanted to do for ages. I think getting up there is going to be a little bit scary, but once I do chuck myself out, I think it'll be pretty good. Uh, good for you, Harry. Well done. <laughs> um, I won't tell you about my various uh, canopy uh, collapses. And, <laughs> yeah, best um, not. <laughs> I did a I did a free fall once, and the parachute didn't open. Right. Well. I hope I hope mine does. <laughs> so do good luck. Yeah, me Thank too. you. You're too, you're too young to, to, for us to lose you. No, but it should be good. I'm looking forward to it. Um, no, don't let me put you off. Honestly, no, I'm, 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 I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You get you, you get in there. So, uh, I have a question. So, if you were to leave uh, one piece of advice for our listeners, um, just from from your life experience, what would that be? So, I have um, I have three kind of core principles. The, the first is uh, uh, discovery. It's about um, lifelong learning, as, as you've indicated earlier. So uh, never think that you're, however old or gray haired you are, that you, you can't learn something. So um, number one for me would be uh, discovery. Uh, number two is uh, the old fashioned teamwork. It's just, uh, I've never done anything in my life uh, solo or on my own. I've always had um, you know, stakeholders, partners, uh, shareholders, expedition team members uh, makes life so much more fun, interesting, and entertaining. And um, but you do need to you do need to work uh, collaboratively uh, with others. So I think uh, concentrating on trying to be a good team player. And then the third is adventure, and we've been speaking quite a lot. Um, nothing about any of my business. Uh, experiences at all it's all been adventure stuff and mindset but um but there we are maybe another time um for, for me uh, being adventurous is really important james and um you know that that includes having a bit of fun understanding where your purpose lies and then following that path um wherever it may lead and and if you're adventurous then you will find interesting uh, journeys for your life okay that's brilliant excellent advice in fact um i'm hoping to next year organize um, a little adventure motorcycle trip um to morocco um and i'm getting together a bunch of really eclectic you know entrepreneurs and investors and just interesting people to be honest the people that you want to sit around the campfire with um i don't know whether you're in into motorbikes um but uh i think um 
uh, an entrepreneur friend of mine in the US. Um, he he knows a guy that has a bunch of KTM's. Um, but anyway, that that's 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 next year's adventure. And so if you if you're up for something like that, then uh, you'd be very that's welcome. Brilliant. No, I definitely definitely am. Not only that, I'm sat in my home office. Uh, underneath me is the garage, and right underneath me is my KTM 450cc uh, off-road motorbike that was bought in North Morocco when I was doing a similar journey a few years ago. Oh, so, fantastic! Um, I can tell you, uh, spend a week in the North Moroccan Sahara Desert is amazing. And uh, yes, I'll definitely come again. And um, uh, yeah, let let me know when. I will do. Well, I've got my 1200 Adventure BMW outside, uh, which I think I might take it out for a little blast later. So uh, <laughs> kindred spirits. Brilliant. We'll have to get Neil back on the podcast to discuss a bit more about business because, yep, like you say, we've touched a lot on adventure today, but we'll have to get you on for the series two um, to go into all about Lawton and Colonel, that sort of thing. But I am afraid that is all we have got time for today. Um, could you finally, for our audience, just tell us a little bit maybe about social media? Where can people follow your journey? Um, Twitter, Facebook, that sort of thing, website? Just type in my name, Neil Lawton, L-A-U, and um, you can find me on all, uh, all the various channels. And the website is lawton.co. Brilliant. Well, Neil, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on RocketPod today. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure and um, best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of RocketPod. Join us next week as we chat to Sharon Davies, the Chief Executive of Young Enterprise. If you have a moment, we'd love it if you could jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a quick review. We love reading your messages and thoughts about the episodes, and it helps us get exposure and sharing more of these inspiring stories with our listeners. Of course, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Flexi, who is the mecca for all your subscriptions. Have an awesome week, and we'll see you next time.